recognize the importance of empathy in the law. Because once you do that, I think it drives a lot of the way you think about the law, you think about legal institutions, and you think about do we really need to increase legal aid funding and things like that. Recognize the power of empathy. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. One person familiar with Will and his career described him as having the widest range of advocacy skills in all of Canada. A partner with the elite litigation firm Lentzner Slatt in Toronto, Will's litigation experience includes commercial disputes, public and governmental relations, libel and slander, and regulatory and criminal matters. Looking to some of his appointments by the courts and government demonstrate the confidence the bar and judiciary has in him as an effective, balanced, and proven lawyer. From 2005 to 2008, Will acted as Canada's Associate Deputy Minister of Justice and a team leader in complex and volatile areas of litigation. Will's steady and measured approach was essential to resolving many of these governmental disputes during these years. In April, Will seeks re-election for a third term as bencher to the Law Society of Ontario. His experienced leadership during this time has assisted Convocation seek common ground and advance many important initiatives, including mental health, governmental relations, and professional regulation. You can learn more about Will's platform at www.litigate.com slash Will for Bencher. You can also visit him on our new special of counsel Bencher series available on iTunes, Spotify, and all other platforms. Once again, I want to say thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. Easily track your case progress with powerful interactive dashboards in the latest LexisNexis case map software update, new for 2019. Create order from chaos with all the details, facts, figures, dates, and locations typically involved in assembling a case. It's easy to get disoriented. That's what makes LexisNexis case map so handy. It's powerful case analysis software that can help you organize your case documents and give you a bird's eye view of your entire case. Learn more about the LexisNexis case map software by visiting our website and William McDowell's page and clicking on the link that will take you directly to the LexisNexis page. So without further ado, here is Will McDowell. Well, it's funny because I had a number of doctors in my extended family. My grandfather uh, was a village doctor in Quebec. And I thought uh, as a kid that I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, But then one of the doctors, my uncle Tom, who was a respirologist, uh, sat me down in about grade 11 and said, as I look at your transcript here, I don't see this doctor thing really in the cards for you. (laughs) So that was one thing. And then... Uh, I was a witness in a criminal case in oh in the mid-70s, I guess, when I was uh, working uh, for the Parks and Rec Department, and there'd been a bit of a brawl at, at one of our uh, parks. 
And there was a terrific lawyer out in Trenton where I grew up named Bert Garrett, who just masterfully gained an acquittal. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You know, from this you can make a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, th- those were the early things, I guess. So the crossroads, I guess, for you was potentially medicine, didn't pan out, and then into law. Do you think that that experience with uh, Garrett drove you into thinking that, in particular, criminal is something that you wanted to do, or was it more of just a legal pursuit in general? I think a legal pursuit in general. The other thing that I should mention is that I was doing political studies at Queen's in beginning of 1980, and this was during uh, the run-up to the patriation of the Constitution. And uh, Mr. Robinette, J.J. Robinette, uh, was incredibly famous then. And uh, we're studying the, the case for the patriation of the Constitution. And then along came this lawyer who was already quite famous, who was the lead counsel for the federal government on, on that brief. Uh, and a book by Jack Batten had just been written about him. And then through a family connection, I met him. And uh, that was a bit of an inspiration too. And then, of course, he had started out doing criminal law and then branched out. So it's just an, it's an amalgam of these things, I guess. You know, if you were being called to the bar right now, what advice do you think you would give yourself to try and achieve it? Because I'm sure you appreciate that for lawyers entering in 2019, it's very different than uh, someone who was called when you were. So starting over, uh, what would, advice would you give to young William McDowell? I think I would say to try and get a little bit of exposure to business uh, before embarking on law. You know, at Queen's and and most other places, there was an an art stream and then there was a commerce stream and you could actually take certain courses. I took economics, but if I was going to do it again, I'd say get a little bit of background in business before starting law school because it it just pops up everywhere uh, when you become a lawyer. Do you see that happening more these days than when you first started? Because, you know, my impression, perhaps I'm wrong about this, but business, there was a time where, you know, merely being a lawyer uh, guaranteed you, perhaps not guaranteed, but delivered a certain amount of minimal success. But now it seems as though younger lawyers are really struggling. Is that part of your answer with that? That's part of the answer. The other thing is that Somebody said to me not long ago that the LLB or the JD degree now is what uh, getting a good solid BA or BSc was in the the 60s, that uh, it guaranteed you a certain entree into the world at large, um, whether it was in business or in something else. And if you look at uh, the raw numbers, there are a lot of people who get law degrees now who branch out into other things, and business is certainly, certainly one of them. So... I think the more exposure that people have to that early, that's probably a good thing. But at the same time, uh, the value of the humanities is enormous in practicing law, the the value of clarity in writing and having a sense of uh, the structure of language and so on. Are you someone that, you know, you've accomplished so much in your career, and I want to get into that in greater detail, but... Um, are you someone that has set goals from an early stage, and even now, do you do you set sort of one-year goal, three-year goal, five-year goals, or is it more serendipitous? It has been serendipitous, uh, really, if I'm being honest. And it, it's funny, when I came back from uh, the government in 2008, I told myself that I would uh, have a series of five-year plans and then look at where I was every five years, and I haven't been ter- terribly successful at doing <laughs> that. But I, I think ideally that's what you do is say, I am going to look uh, off the horizon at five-year intervals and see how things are going and whether I should reappraise and 
and carry on like that. I want to ask you about that because it's a very uh, unique perspective. From 2005 to 2008, you served as Associate Deputy Minister of Justice, dealing with uh, matters of civil litigation, national security, uh, federal, central agencies. So first of all, what exactly does an Associate Deputy Minister of Justice do in the government? Well, the, the phrase in French is uh, sous-ministre délégué, so the deputy minister is the sous-ministre part, and then the délégué is uh, delegated. And I think that's a, an accurate description, that uh, you stand in for the deputy minister in some of his or her responsibilities, but you also have particular assignments, and so you've listed, you've listed mine, um, and you can be assigned to certain uh, big projects. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the Meharar case was a was a, an assigned big project, for example. Uh, recently, the Dean of Ottawa Law, uh, Adam Dodek, in an article entitled, quote, The Impossible Position, Canada's Attorney General Cannot Be Our Justice Minister, mused that they should be separated to avoid conflict and perhaps a recurrence of the controversy that's presently um, in the news. So it seems to me that this was done during a certain period of time and a time that um, you were actually uh, with the government. I wonder, um, you know, does the idea that's now presently being floated by the new Attorney General, David Lametti, that perhaps these positions should be separated? What are your views on that? Uh, What was done when I was with the government uh, was as follows. So historically, the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General of Canada have been fused. So I guess technically, uh, well, not technically, I was the Associate Deputy Attorney General of Canada as well. Uh, When Prime Minister Harper took office in 2006, he wanted to create an independent prosecution service. And he had a number of reasons for doing that, but he was very determined to do it. And so he split off the prosecution service, uh, which had been the Federal Prosecution Service, to become the Public Prosecution Service of Canada under the direction of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Okay, so far so good. But he also created an override position for the truly extraordinary or exceptional case where the Minister of Justice or the Attorney General of Canada could issue a direction in writing uh, in relation to a particular prosecution or could even take over uh, that particular prosecution. So that was quite interesting to live through uh, because uh, all of a sudden when the deputy minister was away, I wasn't being asked to, for example, uh, look at the materials and sign preferred indictments anymore. It all went offshore to another department. Now, do we need an attorney general who is not part of the cabinet? I I think that warrants looking at. uh, But as long as we have the structure where the attorney general can assume a particular prosecution or can issue a directive, in an exceptional case like SNC, we're going to have the same issue where uh, people will make representations to the Attorney General, whether they're uh, from the, uh, the accused uh, perspective or whether they're from the perspective of other members of the government. So I think there's an artificiality of saying that if the Attorney General is no, no longer part of the Cabinet, that these issues wouldn't arise. Could you give a perhaps a practical example, even a hypothetical, of what might be the pros and cons of each model? Is it, like you say, is it a bit of an artificial facade that's going on either way you look at it? Well, there's no, there's no question. Erwin uh, Kotler, who was a wonderful Minister of Justice, has said that uh, there are times that he felt awkward because he had to support a position 
in relation to an issue that had come before cabinet that he as the minister of justice uh, didn't agree with i don't think that that the, the proposed change would cure that i do think that it probably makes it clearer that the attorney general in in coming to decisions whether to intervene in a prosecution or whether to issue a directive is acting independently it does make it clearer if the Attorney General is not at the Cabinet table. Mm -hmm. Because the principle of Cabinet solidarity is a very powerful one. And I think that people who are well-meaning and acting in good faith can can get close to the line when you're all sitting around the Cabinet table. Right. I should add, by the way, there is an irony. And that is that before the DPP came along uh, and there was the override provision, there was a well-established constitutional practice uh, that the Minister of Justice and Attorney General did not intervene in particular prosecutions and had no operational responsibility for individual prosecutions so that uh, the Attorney General slash Minister of Justice could say to the head of the prosecution service, I need to understand what's happening and would get quite comprehensively briefed but would not issue directives to do things. So it, there is an irony that in creating the independent prosecution service, the, Har- the Harper government actually created the mechanism where the attorney general could become directly involved operationally in a, in a given prosecution. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, these sorts of big cases, I'm sure, have a, a life of their own, and uh, I imagine are largely inconceivable you know i use and i don't want to talk about snc level in, in particular here but i just say that as an example of the type of cases that might come across your desk sitting as a associate deputy minister of justice and moving on further into your career um, you obviously deal with very large scale litigation files of such a mass that it, it would be very hard for um, sole practitioners even those who are doing homicides for example might have a hard time comprehending so is there some sort of triage that's applied to this? Um, you now are a partner with Leinster Slat, who has a type of infrastructure. But how, when, when you have a big case like that come in, what are sort of the first steps in litigation that are done to figure out what the heck is going on? Well, it depends whether or not there's litigation underway, whether there's a claim that you can look at, you can see the issues. But uh, we have superb research lawyers. Scott Rollwagon is our research partner. And uh, he's the first stop, really, to sit down and say, here are the issues that I see arising in this situation. Um, And invariably, uh, Scott will add a couple of dimensions that uh, none of us have thought of. So we start there, and we pull together a memorandum that uh, will say to the the client, here is what we see are the the issues that have arisen, and uh, can we begin kind of uh, finding out who knows about these issues within the organization or if it's an individual. Can we figure out the answers to these questions and if the answers have to come from others in your sphere of influence, other members of your family or experts or physicians, let's get those answers. And then we have to uh, do the thing that is inevitable in these big cases now, which is to preserve documents. And uh, I can't tell you how much more of a burden it is now that you have to find every email and deduplicate every email and preserve in an electronic base uh, every document and, and every email. That it, 
I'm, I'm sure it has quintupled the cost of litigation. Do you feel now that because of that type of technological integration, the use of uh, more junior counsel are essential to try and, I mean, they've always had a very essential role, but um, so much has changed in litigation, I'm sure, over the years for you sure. with these big cases. Uh, how has the role of junior counsel changed? Well, that, that's a really good question because it used to be, going back even a few years, that junior counsel would be involved in massive document reviews. And in certain uh, highly sensitive cases, we still do that. But more often, we hire document management companies uh, who do that for us. And many of them have um, young lawyers who work for them get paid a fairly decent hourly rate to look at documents and to, to tag stuff that's privileged or relevant or is a hot document, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Usually, the junior lawyers are assessing the material that comes back from the document management companies and, and figuring out where that fits into the broader strategy. Mm-hmm. Is there a point in a litigation team where it just there's the diminishing return. So, for example, having three, you know, you've got your lead counsel like yourself and then maybe two juniors, or does it just keep adapting to how big a case is? I mean, surely at some point it gets unwieldy when you're heading into court. Well, yes. Here at Lansner Slat, we tend to run things pretty leanly. We usually have a senior lawyer and then somebody in the middle who's usually a, a younger partner, and then we'll have an associate or two. Mm-hmm. But it depends. There are cases that can support, you know, three or four partners because of the breadth of the issues. And there are there are discrete issues that you can saw off and say, okay, you deal with the pretrial motions on this. Or mm-hmm. You deal with the evidence that's going to come uh, from examining parties prior to trial. And uh, you deal with damages, I'll deal with liability. So it, so it all depends. I think your your premise is right that there are cases that are large, large enough uh, that warrant having a larger team involved. Mm-hmm. So of these cases, I mean, you've been involved in so many. Um, uh, anyone can visit your profile on your website at litigate.com and go through some of these amazing accomplishments. But is there one particular inquiry or um, case that you've either been responsible for or been part of that you're particularly proud of? When you're put on the spot and you're asked to, to pick one or pick two, <laughs> it's always hard. Uh, I was very proud of, of the work that uh, I did with a wonderful team in Ottawa on the Meharar uh, civil case, because that was a case that could have gone on for 10 years easily. There had been a commission of inquiry, and Associate Chief Justice O'Connor had said to the government in his report, and it was wonderful language, he said that Mr. Arar should be compensated and the government shouldn't be too lawyerly about it. And so we uh, assembled a team. Uh, We had uh, very senior people from the RCMP, from Foreign Affairs, from CSIS, from the Department of Justice, all involved. And we managed over the course of a three-day mediation, uh, which sprawled into four days, to get the thing resolved. And there are lots of Canadians around who say, well, I'm not sure why we gave all that money to the Arar family, but I don't have any doubt that it was the right thing to do because Mr. Arar had been horribly affected, had been tortured. His wife had lost her career as an academic. He had a brother who'd lost a trucking company and so on. So I I was proud of that piece of work. Uh, Rob McKinnon, my colleague in Ottawa, uh, was instrumental in that as well. Uh, But then there are other cases. A a few years ago, we did a case uh, 
which is known regionally as the Angry Beaver case, where a patron of a pub drove the wrong way on the 401 after a Super Bowl party and killed herself and an oncoming driver. And the police charged the owners of the bar, the Angry Beaver, uh, with uh, manslaughter, which we thought was an overreach and would have been a really unwarranted extension of the law of manslaughter. And we managed to get a discharge at the preliminary inquiry, which was uh, upheld uh, in the uh, review taken by the Crown. So that case, which is Regina versus Steinmiller and Stoll, I'm proud of as well. And then there are, there are, there are lots of others, and some small, some big. There are, there are cases that I can remember doing in the 90s for young accused uh, charged in, in drug offenses, and in particular, I seem to have a string of those where we managed to get acquittals because I think there had been racial profiling. So I was quite pleased with, with those at the time, and I still am. A lot of these cases um, wind up before the media, and one of the struggles a lot of lawyers have, particularly recent calls, is how to address the media. You know, there's obviously the comment, I have no comment. Sometimes there needs to be a bit more of a thoughtful response. What is your advice to lawyers in trying to deal with the media in cases that may come across their desk that they didn't really expect would draw the attention it has? Well, so going back to Mr. Robinette, he never in his career spoke to the media. Um, and it was considered, I think, bad form uh, to do so. The late Eddie Greenspan was criticized uh, a, a great deal in the 1970s because he would speak to the media. But now I think it's part of the advocacy that we have to do for our clients. I prefer, in a big case, to have a media relations company do it mm -hmm. because you can work with them, you can agree on the message, they've got the relationships, they know who's to be trusted and, and who isn't. But if you have to do it, I say uh, work out in advance what, what the message is going to be. Stick to the message. Um, the message should be informed by wanting to uh, put across to the, to the readers or to the listeners, these are the issues in the case and the position of the client is X. But it's to explain the position. It's not to argue the position because... For good reason, it really annoys the judiciary if you're seen to be arguing your case uh, in the media. I think you want to be brief. You want to be clear. If you're dealing with reporters who are interviewing you for, for print media, what you want to do is say, can you read that back to me so that there's an understanding that, that what's been said was intended to be said. And most, most media are pretty good about saying uh, that they'll do a do-over if there's been some slip or something. Mm -hmm. That's right. But, but you do, and, and the thing is, I think it's important to return calls, even if you're not going to make any comment, to call the reporter back and say, look, I can tell you when the court appearance is going to be or when we're going to file our, our statement of defense or something, but I can't give you any further comment. That's actually quite helpful to them. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you're not in a position to, to make any comment for the record. So moving from outside of the courtroom on the steps, inside of the courtroom, how would you describe your advocacy style? Uh, well, I strive to be clear, and um, I uh, try to be over-prepared because uh, there's no substitute for that. Uh, but I, I have a bit of a light touch. I, I don't think you ever get uh, very far either in 
examination or cross-examination by yelling at people. And um, I think that the, what the court wants really is a conversation about what, what the principles are that are in play and wants you to be adept and nimble in, a, in answering questions. And so I, I try to do those things. When you're mentoring uh, younger lawyers, do you have any advice you give them to, for them to find their own style of advocacy? Well, we like to be pious about this, but the fact is a lot of this is imitative. And uh, I've probably learned more by watching senior counsel than I have doing anything else. And uh, I know that at the Court of Appeal, there is something that they informally call a good counsel watch. And so, so the court, members of the court will tell the clerks of the Court of Appeal who are effectively articling students, you should come to watch you know, Ben Zarnat before he went to the Court of Appeal or come to watch Tom Curry or come to watch uh, Neil Zortved or somebody else. And you really do learn a ton by doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've been to the Supreme Court a number of times. Every time I've gone, I have sort of binge-watched a bunch of big appeals to watch the style of different counsel and to, to get a scouting report on, on who on the bench is likely to be most active and most aggressive and, and so on. Is there one particular technique or strategy that has resonated throughout your career? I mean, one in particular for me that I remember quite clearly is uh, David Stratus uh, emphasizing to us the importance of understatement. And mm-hmm. that's something that's really um, driven me throughout my career. I'm not always uh, following that. Sometimes emotions get the better of me. But is there something that uh, you've watched or learned from an advocate that uh, really resonated with you? That's true about understatement, that just taking, for example, in, in closing argument, just taking what a witness has said and, and reading it calmly and stopping and letting the judge or letting the jury take it in the silence and then maybe going back and reading it again or reading parts of it again. I think that's a really, a really powerful thing. Making sure that all of the paper that you need is in front of you is a really important thing. So Eddie Greenspan, I, I did a large case against Eddie and an even larger case with Eddie, a couple of cases. And Eddie, when he cross-examined, would have individual folders of different colors with every document that he needed to put to a witness. That may seem like a small thing, but it, make, it makes the cross-examinations just go click, click, give me the next one, give me the next one. And then you have to have someone who's like a a gun loader at a, at a partridge shoot who's handing you the documents or handing you the folders to put to the witness. But that kind of thing is very important. To know the record, to know where everything in the record is, is incredibly important. And it amazes me how many times uh, you see counsel, not just young counsel, who are floundering around and saying, now, if you just give me a second and, <laughs> you know, and, the, and the document isn't where it's supposed to be, uh, is quite something, and and I know that a number of my colleagues here are using tablets uh, to carry all of the documents and to cross-examine that way. That's great when it works, um, but if there's any doubt about the technology, it's a real problem. I want to build on that a little bit because I ask a lot of our guests about influence, not just as a matter of intellectual influence, but as emotional influence, and as you're describing this, you know, especially picturing back to watching Eddie a few times myself, it's just the emotional effect that flow has upon yes. persuasion. I wonder, do you uh, feel that 
there's more to advocacy than just being right uh, and, and somewhat presenting the human nature to the side of things? Well, yes, because you look at, you look at cases sometimes where you would think, well, the law is just dead against the, the accused or is just dead against the uh, plaintiff. A case many years ago when I was at McCarthy's, uh, where McCarthy's was defending an insurer in a claim on a life insurance policy. And the, the issue, as it often is, was whether or not the policyholder had committed suicide. Uh, and uh, you would have thought this was a slam dunk for the insurer. But it's a jury trial. It's in the locality. Uh, the jury, uh, most of them probably know the widow, and so on. And uh, I think in those circumstances to to humanize the policyholder and and talk about how the policyholder uh, had his frailties and um, how every doubt even this is not the law but how every doubt should be resolved in favor of the widow who's claiming on the policy you know that is ralph skane who taught me uh, trust that uh, u of t said you can take the law or you can take those facts you know, and those facts often are, are far more powerful than the law, mm -hmm. and not just with juries. Is there something that you hear often or have heard often in your career, a sort of a, a mantra of advice that you've always thought and now still believe is wrong, that is just rather misguided or too simplistic? Well, it used to be the old adage that if, you, if the law was on your side, emphasize the law, if the facts are on your side, emphasize the facts. If neither were, just pound the table. And I think we, <laughs> you know, I think we now know that that doesn't really work. Right. Um, the whole idea that uh, people say, "I want to hire a pit bull," and in the states, this is still a very prominent thought uh, when people are appraising lawyers. I just have never thought that that worked by itself. That uh, counsel have to have to have the case wired, have to understand exactly uh, the force of different parts of the record and have to understand the legal position. And frankly, once you get to that point, yelling and screaming about it doesn't, in my experience, really get one anywhere. Uh, with this firm, and I'm sure with all of your other experience, you've seen a lot of um, excellent litigators come and go and, and form into who they are. Um, do you think there's a overriding trait that you've come to recognize and, and you're able to spot with young litigators now at your firm that you know are going to be great? Yes, I think, there, I think there are several. One is that if you talk about the cases, just come in the, door, in the door and you say to a young lawyer, can you look at, just look at, at this constellation of facts or look at this pleading that the other side has served uh, and can you come back and just tell me what the law is in relation to these areas? There are young lawyers who will come back and say, well, here's the law, but I've been thinking about it, and here is an obvious weakness on one side or the other. They take it one step further. So there's that. It is uh, pretty apparent uh, when you see young lawyers over a period of a couple of years whether they've got courage or not and uh, whether or not they have the ability to kind of stand in the pocket, to use an American analogy, and and deal with the questioning uh, as it comes or deal with the interventions of the bench as they come. And uh, one of my colleagues here uh, says, can they dance? Hmm. You know, can the, 
can the young litigator dance? And I think that's a great way of putting it, which is really a shorthand way of saying, can, can they adapt? Can they think laterally? And so on and so on. Moving to a sort of a bit lighter area of, of litigation or, or perhaps more personal, um, is there something that you do to prepare yourself for a big day? Is there a particular song you listen to or breakfast you have or something that you really need to do to be on point? Well, this is trite, but I try and get a good night's sleep the night before. And so if you back up from that, I try and do some fairly vigorous exercise the afternoon before so I can get a decent sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend not to be terribly ritualistic, but it is important to eat a good breakfast if you're going into a day in court. And a lot of people are kind of too nervous that they don't do that. But I think that's important because you may not, well, you you may not, you you won't get to eat lunch till probably one o'clock. So so I try not to have too much coffee, but to, to have something in my stomach. What about coming down? Everyone has, you know, after, especially after a big victory, is there something that you just love to do? Is it complete, you know, shut off your mind and watch television, or is it something um, social? I like to take the team out, uh, depending on when you get the result, either for lunch or for drinks, mm-hmm. or, or for both. I think that that's important so that everyone shares in, in uh, the victory. But then what I like to do is, is frankly, get out of town. Uh, we have a place in Prince Edward County, and I, I like to get out and shut down for the weekend and cut the grass and split wood and go for a long walk on, on the beach with the, the dogs. You know, there's one thing that litigators, we all have what I refer to as the ghosts of litigation, where yeah. you look back and you think, I wish I'd done this differently. It's obviously cases that we weren't pleased with the result upon. Yeah. How have you come to learn to deal with those ghosts? Well, you can always learn from your losses. I mean, you always learn from your losses, either like how you were, how you're outflanked on some issue, uh, or how you didn't anticipate an issue that that arose, or you didn't. Uh, serve notice in respect of a particular document or documents, and they were they were ruled inadmissible. I mean, I can think of a of an instance where we had a big case at McCarthy's, and uh, there was an expert who I had gone out to Vancouver a number of times to prepare, and we prepared him quite thoroughly. And so when he testified in chief, he was asked, "Will you assume the following facts?" And then he gave an opinion based on the facts. And then in cross-examination, counsel said, well, I want you to assume a couple of different facts. And he said, no. <laughs> we were all kind of astounded by this. And Jim Hodgson, the defense counsel, or the plaintiff's counsel, rather, said, well, why won't you assume those facts? You, you assume Mr. McDowell's facts. And, and he said, I don't like those facts. And, you know, it would never until that point have occurred to me that you had to say to them, uh, look, you know, you've got to be even-handed about this in this particular way. And so I think the lesson that I took from that was it's not enough to, to prepare saying here's what the facts are and here's what the literature is. You have to actually brainstorm or war game through the actual exercise. Here's how it's going to roll out. Here's how it's going to roll out down to the minutiae in the cross-examination. Right. So I guess the lesson there is is embrace the failures and try and learn from it so it doesn't happen again. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. Because we've all had them. We've all had them. I want to talk to you about um, sort of broader issues of the law because, as we all know, you're running for bencher 
Um, you, this will be your third term if elected. Um, you've, you've had some really amazing um, accomplishments while um, acting in convocation. And I believe if you go to litigate.com backslash Will for Venture, is mm-hmm. that the website? I, th- I think that's right. I yes. think it is. And we'll link it on our, our post here, but you can read about all those accomplishments. Before we get into sort of the minutiae of uh, what your platform is, I have a question um, about the role of lawyers in 2019 and the next 10 years. Where do you see the profession of law going over the next five to 20 years? And do you think um, we're ready for these changes as a profession? Well, I think that we can't underestimate the influence that uh, artificial intelligence is going to have on the profession. So that uh, more and more of the analytical work that that is being done by uh, used to be uh, associate lawyers in the case of document review, more and more of that is going to be done by artificial intelligence, uh, which raises uh, some significant issues. I think um, the use of technology generally in the litigation process uh, will be very important. That We are hopelessly behind the rest of uh, North America in uh, digitizing court records. So in Alberta, for example, you can go online and find many, many things in court filings. You can at the Supreme Court of Canada. You can in in the federal court system in the States. You can't do that here. And I think that over the next 10 years, that will change dramatically, which should, in theory, lower or at least stabilize the cost of litigation because a lot of it now is bound up in having to physically go and file things. So that that's an important thing. I think that we have to worry about the governance of, of the profession, the governance of the law society, that we do have to reform. We are reforming, but we have to do so in a way that also keeps in mind the importance of an independent bar. Mm-hmm. And there's a real danger of people overlooking that and saying, well, we have to be just like the way the health professions are, are governed or just the way the architects are governed. We have a rule of law responsibility uh, as a profession that, frankly, those other professions don't. Is there a character trait you've noticed? Because now you're you're in your eighth year convocation. You've seen ventures come and go, a lot of them. Um, is there a single character trait that you feel is essential to be being a venture and perhaps something you've learned to marshal in yourself to try and pursue? It's a lot of work, and I think that uh, people are really surprised at how much work it is uh, once elected, certainly if you're sitting on the tribunal as well as doing your other responsibilities. So you have to be prepared to give priority to that work. You have to be prepared to listen to the other side because there are huge issues coming before convocation uh, in which there is something to be said on many sides of the issue. And it's very important to say I am... Uh, a bencher, uh, and I'm a bencher at large. I'm not a bencher representing um, the Bay Street constituency or any particular uh, group, uh, whether it's a, a national group or some other group within uh, within the law society. I am there to govern the profession in the public interest. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that that's important. The idea of figuring out where we can find common ground and recognizing that it's a long haul and uh, to the extent that you don't get your way in any individual uh, issue, uh, those things will tend to correct over time. Is there a particular piece of advice you might offer 
uh, a newly elected venture, and perhaps you've already done so during your mentorship of, of newly elected ventures um, for someone who is just uh, coming on, aside from what you just said, and that is listen carefully to both sides? Well, it, it's funny. Uh, when I became a venture, the treasurer of the day, Lori Politza, said effectively, don't say anything for a year, just listen. Mm -hmm. And that may have been a little too constraining, but I think the idea of showing up and getting a sense of the lie of the land and reading, reading the committee reports and reading, reading the backgrounders, uh, which can run to hundreds of pages, but, but having a sense of it all uh, before making an intervention, uh, I think is important because it's very easy to say something chippy about individual things that come before convocation, but... I think it pays to be minimalist, particularly in the early going. Pick your spot, but make sure it's an informed position and that it's not a position that's just repetitive of somebody else's position. Right. Uh, is there an accomplishment that you've been part of um, that you're particularly proud of within your role as venture? Well, I was proud of the work that uh, I led up together with Kathy Strasberg in the Mental Health Task Force. Uh, which had two parts. One was sort of an informational component, making sure that the profession was aware of the resources available to deal with things like depression. And the second part, there are other parts, but the second most important part was to adapt our, our discipline processes uh, to make sure that they weren't unfairly targeting people uh, who suffer from mental illnesses. And I'll give you an example. Just after I became a venture and was sitting on the tribunal, we had a briefing that uh, was given to us by the then head of the professional regulation division. And in the prior year, there had been, I think, 134 uh, discipline prosecutions and only two capacity hearings. But you don't have to sit in the tribunal very long before you appreciate that mental health is a huge overlay to many, many of these prosecutions. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I was determined to address, and we have addressed, and in the tribunal rules, which have uh, just been revised but not yet approved by convocation, there are a number of important accommodations that have been made uh, for people who are suffering from mental illness. So uh, wrapping up then, Will, I can ask you a question I ask almost all our guests, and that is, um, if you could uh, reverse or tweak one Supreme Court of Canada case, uh, which one might it be? Uh, I'm going to be petty about this and say that it's, my, <laughs> it's the case that I lost for Google in the Supreme Court of Canada that spoke about uh, the ability of courts to make worldwide orders. Because I, I just think that what the court did there was something that, uh, as the dissenters said, completely ignored the principle of judicial restraint. And uh, it seems to me that ever since uh, the court made the order, other courts, other appellate courts, have been retrenching from it. And so if I wanted to think of one recent example, it may be not the most important case in the world in the grand scheme of things, but it was an important case, I would look to Google and say, I think they got that wrong. The name of that case is Google, I presume? Or? That is Google versus Equistech, E-Q-U-U-S-T-E-K. Uh, what year was that? In? Uh, it was 2016, I believe. Okay, so in closing then, what is your elevator pitch to the nation? I often say to my guests, if you could run one ad about the law and educate the public in a Stanley Cup final, Lease versus the Canadians, what, what might it be to help us all out as lawyers? 
recognize the importance of empathy uh, in the law. Because once you do that, I think it drives a lot of the way you think about the law, you think about legal institutions, and you think about do we really need to increase legal aid funding and things like that. Recognize the power of empathy. Thank you, everyone. That is uh, William McDowell, who is a partner here at Lentzner Slot and running in the upcoming uh, 2019 Bencher election. Uh, William has also kindly agreed to participate in our Of Council Bencher series, so you can learn more about his platform there or by visiting his own platform at litigate.com uh, backslash uh, Wilford Bencher.